Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's an old classic hymn. If you are church-raised, maybe a little bit older than you know this one, what can wash away my sin? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now there are two words, two words there that uh, a lot of us are not comfortable with. One is the word blood, and the other is the word sin. Now, in Fort McMurray, I can get away with talking about blood a bit more than I can in more urban centers like Vancouver and Toronto. The reason is we've got a lot of guys and gals who get themselves all bloodied up with a deer or a moose and an elk that they've arrowed or shot, or the nice way of saying it is harvested. And then we hang them at first in the bush where we took the animal, but then we let them hang in our garages and sheds, just letting the blood drip as we age the meat. So a lot of us in Fort McMurray, we're, we're not squeamish about blood. We're used to getting our hands right in there, although today we, we tend to use, for uh, health reasons, uh, latex gloves. So some of what I'm going to say for some of you, at least some of you, is not going to be quite so hard for you to stomach. You look at this picture of deer hanging in the bush just after a snowfall, and you see art, right? You, you, you see beauty. I mean, seriously, some of us do, all right? Uh, and, and that's why this pic was such a hit when I first posted it on social media. Posted it again last night, and what happened was, yeah, actually, my, my daughter quickly sent me a uh, screenshot of what Facebook did. They blocked it over, said, graphic content, you've got to press to see it first. And she went, ha, 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 that's you, Dad. Anyways, but... Uh, um, yeah, so I, I get it that others of you, uh, maybe not, uh, um, you're rolling your eyes at this point, it is what it is, and for you, you're just like most Canadians, you don't hunt, you don't hang and butcher meat, you don't live in a farm, so the word blood and how blood relates to the Christian faith might be a little bit uncomfortable. You don't share the passion that those deer hanging there is a work of art, and Hey, if this was in Vancouver, I get it. I wouldn't get away with putting that picture on the screen. So some of you, you're in very good company, right? I did have a friend. He gave up hunting, and I asked him why, and he said, too much blood. I get blood all over my boots, my pants, my arms, and my hands. I don't know what all he was doing. But anyways, this was before we started to wear those latex gloves while field dressing a deer, and he went on. I mean, the moment I pull the trigger, what happens next involves a lot of blood and guts, and I'm just done with that. But uh, most hunters, and I suspect farmers too, they actually experience a little bit of exhilaration from all that blood. It's, it's not, by the way, that we're sick, demented people, okay? It's, it's that it's all part of just that primal process of, uh, of bringing your own fresh organic meat to the table. Uh, there is for many of us, at least there is for me, there is something really cool and exhilarating about taking an animal, draining the blood, butchering it, and, and then eating what you yourself have harvested it. And... I get away with saying that here in Fort McMurray. Awesome. But then there's another angle. Some of you, maybe you don't hunt, maybe you do, but you love horror movies. The bloodier, the better. And I get that it's on screen and it's not real. It's kind of fantasy, so that tempers it a bit. Uh, I'm not particularly a horror film fan, but I know a guy. He's a good friend of my brother-in-law, and he creates the special effects for all the Saw movies. I don't know if any of you are familiar with those movies. Uh, there are eight of them, and the last one came out in 2017. Most came out between 2004 and 2010. So this guy I know, his job is to manufacture blood and find new ways to spray the screen with gore and freak everyone out. He, he works in downtown Toronto, has a little lab or workspace on Young Street, Toronto's main street, and as he works, he wears a light, a white lab coat. 
And he told me about one morning when he just had a need for a coffee, and, and, and without thinking, he just ran across the street to grab a Starbucks. He, he lines up, and the people start to stare weirdly at him. Oops, he forgot to take his lab coat off. He's got what looks like blood all over his coat. He's now expecting a SWAT team at any moment. But he stays cool, stays in line, gets his coffee, and walks back to his workplace. SWAT team never arrives, letting you know how easy it is to get away with murder in Toronto. But <laughs> now he's a little more careful about what he's wearing when he goes for a coffee. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Blood of Jesus kind of weird, isn't it? And there's another word there that we cringe at. It's the word sin. Our culture has pushed the word sin away from common everyday use and left it as a scary religious word of condemnation. It's not considered a nice word. It's not a word that you would use to talk about someone else or even some action. I mean, sin is such a heavy word. It's, it's a terrible word. It's a condemning word. It's, it's almost never used in our culture except in church or, or by people who want to mock church people. Although we do commonly use the phrase sin tax, you know, to talk about the tax on alcohol and tobacco. And I read an article yesterday that there's a movement out there. You can Google this. There are people who want to put a sin tax on me. That's just another story. We won't get into that. But now in our culture today, whether you're churched or not, when you say, I've sinned to a friend, that's like a huge admission. You're saying, oh man, I'm toast. It's over. There's no hope because I sinned. There's no wiggle room. And in our culture, in our nice, sweet Canadian culture, we want to speak nicely. And so we've replaced the word sin with mistake. I mean, think about a, a politician or a public official or somebody in the news who got caught doing something that he or she shouldn't have been doing. But when that guy or gal gets caught and is thrust into the media frenzy with dozens of reporters and cameramen trying to get a scoop on what happened, the word sin never comes up. What you will hear is, I made a mistake, right? But you listen to their story. They blew up their family. They, they blew up their office. They, they blew up their reputation. And they hurt the city they live in, the, the place where they work. And they keep saying, I, I've made a mistake. Come on. It's a whole lot more than a mistake. A mistake is something you make on a math test. A mistake can be something you unintentionally did on your income tax. That's unintentionally. A mistake is when you're uh, trying to drive and, and you look at the directions that have been given to you and you make a left instead of a right. That's a mistake. But buddy, what you did when all of those reporters are clamoring around you is not because you made a mistake. What you did, that wasn't a mistake. That was way bigger than a mistake. But we use the term mistake and we kind of dumb it all down. Hey, we think of ourselves as mistakers, not as sinners, right? Okay, I know that mistakers is not a real word. I picked it up from Andy Stanley, who's been a bit of an influence on this message. But I think the word mistaker is really how we think of ourselves today. I mean, with all of the good self-esteem teaching we get, mistaker is far nicer than sinner, right? If I were to walk into a grade 12 classroom, Westview, for instance, and ask, how many of you have ever made a mistake? Every hand would go up. If I asked how many of you have ever sinned, that would be awkward. It might even be considered inappropriate. Maybe less so at the Catholic Father Merck, but still there, awkward, I think. So today, in our second message in the series, Come As You Are, I want to talk about sin and blood. 
I want to unpack the classic Christian teaching, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And end with us taking communion together, which is all about the body of Jesus nailed to a cross, where the writers of the Bible tell us that his blood washes our sin away. But here's the problem. It's not just politicians and celebrities and hashtag MeToo offenders who are more than just mistakers. It's all of us. The Bible uses that very unpopular term to describe us, the term sinner. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he goes on to explain that the consequences of sin are severe. Severe now and severe for eternity, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. It is life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul wants us to understand that no human being is born with the ability to live a perfect life. No human being can live a sin-free life. So when I call you a sinner, and you call me a sinner, we're really not so much insulting one another. It's just reality. We're, we're just being honest about who we are. Sinner is who you are. It is who I am. It is our nature from birth. And it's a destructive part of who we are. It hinders our potential. It robs us of the life we want to live now. It robs us of eternal life. It, it separates us from the life and love of a perfectly holy God. You know, as we move from being kids to adults, our mistakes, we'll, we'll call them that just to be nice for now, but our mistakes as we got older, they, they, they got bigger, didn't they? And, and as much as we try to push it away and push it down, some of these uh, mistakes uh, leave us with feelings of deep guilt and shame. So many of us, I mean, many of us would love to go back and relive a moment, a bad decision, a, a mistake we made, really a, a sin that we embraced and do it over. But we can't. And this isn't really a religious thing. Everybody experiences to some extent or another. And you're just kind of embarrassed about it. You hope nobody asks you about your first marriage. You hope nobody knows what you did when you first moved to Fort McMurray as a single or those of you who did college, what happened there. There was just this one week and, oh boy, wow, no, I don't want to talk about it. And there's that thing that you did with money and that thing that you did at work and that thing that you did to your boss. There's just stuff, right? Guilt and shame. And it's a crazy thing. And you don't have to be religious to feel this. It, it, it just is. What can wash away my sin? What can wash away my guilt? What can wash away my shame? What can wash away my mistake? What can wash away my memories? You know, you hear a name and all those memories just flood back. Or you drive down a street or, or, or you see that person and the memories flood back. Some of you try to drink it away, uh, medicate it away. Some of you work longer and harder. Just something is driving you to do something. For a lot of us, we, we just try to bury it in the sea of, well, everyone does it. I'm not the first. Nobody's perfect. Don't, don't they say that at Fort City Church? Uh, nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect, so I'm fine. And you say things like, well, I was young, I was drunk, I was angry. It was a period in my life when I was lonely. I was broke, what would you expect me to do? Hey, I didn't know any better. And I get that all of this is true, absolutely true. But saying that, acknowledging that, still doesn't wash it away. It, it still doesn't go away, it just kind of hangs there. It's a cloud. 
Not every day. Not every minute of every day, but it just sort of follows you around in life like a shadow. And what you don't realize is that deep down you are yearning to be forgiven. You are yearning to be released, to be set free so that you can live life well, so that you can flourish, that you can live life with the weight of guilt and shame gone. And this is the free gift that God wants to give you. Forgiveness, guilt and shame removed, the the burden lifted so that you can experience life, life to the full, life the way God has designed it to be lived. You know, every religious system, Islam, Hinduism, even secularism, and yes, secularism is just another religion. It's just a a religion without God. But every system has its methods to deal with sin and guilt and shame. You got to do something. You got to strive at something. Christianity is totally different. Because in the history of our world, in the history of all the peoples of our world, and this is a staggering thought, only Christianity has... It's only in Christianity where one person stepped forward and said, I don't simply have the solution. I am the solution. Well, that's kind of crazy, eh? I mean, who would say such a thing? Insane, right? Let me unpack this by going to the books that were written about Jesus, you know, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And let me take you to a scene that Mark describes. Now, Mark gets his information about Jesus from the Apostle Peter, just in case you were wondering. Mark writes and He's talking about a guy uh, we call John the Baptist. And the reason he was John the Baptist isn't because he wasn't John the Pentecostal, but because he was doing something just a bit unusual in Jewish culture. He was baptizing people in the River Jordan, and, and that was not normal, okay? And Mark says, The whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, back in the first century, if someone wanted to change religion, maybe convert to Judaism, they would go through a ceremony, and part of the ceremony involved a ritual washing, something like baptism. So this idea of baptism wasn't uh, totally new. Uh, This was a thing that you did, though, in those days. that You did it by yourself. Uh, Someone didn't do it uh, to you. And, And generally, you only did it, especially in the first century, when you were converting. So... Baptism was an act of religious devotion. It was kind of an act of a new start. It was kind of like conversion. And for the guys, what this meant, if you were converting to Jerusalem, you would do this ritual washing, you would be circumcised, and then you would have this blood. You'd have some blood, sacrificial blood, applied uh, over you. The woman got off a little easier, no circumcision. But anyways, just thought you needed to know. But what's happening is people all over were people who were already Jewish were coming to the Jordan to hear John speak and to allow him to take hold of them and dunk them in the river. And I'm told nobody had done it quite this way before. John was the first to to really do the dunking thing. Now, I don't know if you would like the preaching of John the Baptist. He he was one of those hard, uh, in-your-face preachers who makes everyone feel worthless, calling on everyone to repent of all your sins. He would list them. He wouldn't mince his words. No gentle approach, just raw, in-your-face, repent of your sin and get right with God kind of deal. And, And there is a place for that kind of preaching. Certainly, it was something that was uh, more than appropriate uh, dealing with the uh, religiously raised people of of Jesus' day and sometime for religiously raised people today. But then, John starts saying that, well, well, I'm just a sign. 
I'm assigned pointing the way to another guy, a, a greater guy, the guy that you really want to know and follow. And, and this is written in, in a book by another John, John, an apostle of Jesus. And this John quotes John the Baptist, who says, I baptize with water. But among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. The crowds are coming to hear John the Baptist. They are convicted that they are more than just mistakers, that they are sinners, sinners who need forgiveness. They repent. They are baptized. This baptism signals a new beginning in their lives. But then John says, wait a minute. There is someone far greater than me that you need to be paying attention to. And then we read, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, there's a Lamb, the Lamb of God. And everybody's looking for a sheep, right? But they're literalists. And I think John just rolls his eyes and says, No, no, look there. Look at Jesus. Look. And by the way, there is no of in the original of Greek. What John is saying is, Look, God has sent a Lamb. Look, He has done something. What has God done? God has sent a Lamb. Now, I don't think this really grabs you and me like it did Jewish people back then. For 1,500 years, uh, for those of you who are precise, 1,479 to be exact, but we'll round it to 1,500. This is a culture that has been sacrificing lambs because you drain the blood of the lamb and and you offer it as a sacrifice and it atones for, it covers, it it pays for your sin, it forgives you. Just this week, I, I was doing my daily Bible reading. This is something I encourage you all to do. Find some time almost every day if you can and read or listen to a part of the Bible or maybe use the YouVersion app or watch the Bible Project videos on YouTube. they got 99 of them so far. And just get into the Bible on your own and start with the Gospels. And I'd encourage you to start with the Gospel of Mark. And while we're talking about the Gospel of Mark, let me throw in an ad for the... We were talking groups, so let me throw in an ad for the men's Tuesday night uh, study group that I co-lead with Hans Zundel. This Tuesday, 7.30, all men, that's about half of you here, uh, are invited. We'd love to have you out for a study where we're just going to take a look at Jesus and what it means to be men who who follow Jesus. And yeah, if you're a guy, uh, I just encourage you to come out. The Gospel of Mark, you're going to learn about Jesus and it's going to be life-changing. So that was just a little commercial break. Getting back to my reading of the Bible last week, uh, I I was reading in the book of 1 Kings as it described the dedication of the very first permanent Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And all of Israel was just pumped about this. Uh, We read uh, that Solomon offered a sacrifice of fellowship offerings to the Lord and and get this, 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the Israelites dedicated the temple of the Lord. Quite frankly, I simply cannot imagine the amount of blood that flowed out of 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. Two deer hanging in my garage at one time, four deer in a friend's garage. I'll spare you the pictures. That's what I can identify with. But not like over 140,000 animals whose blood is flowing and flowing and flowing like knee-deep. I don't know how they dealt with all of the blood. (coughs) Okay. That, opened, that only happened at that scale at one time in history at the dedication of the first temple. But that's what was happening at the temple every day, just not at the same scale. Uh, uh, it was a place of sacrifice where animals were sacrificed, where blood was drained as a, wi- as a way to repent of sin and to get right with God. 
You see, it's a picture of the cost of sin, the, the destructiveness of sin, and, and that death atones for sin. That sin is serious. It's not just a mistake. When, when John the Baptist came, the people were very familiar with all of this. But at the same time, and <coughs> I think they're smart people, and, and they intuitively understand that there's no way a dead animal can atone for or or, or, or cover or, or, or get forgiveness for a living human being, right? Like, like, how does this work? I mean, I don't care how many animals you kill, unless you are an extreme animal rights activist, the blood of animals is never the equivalent of the blood of a person. But for 1,500 years, they had a tradition that when someone sins, something's got to die. And a Jewish person before the days of Jesus would say, we recognize that we deserve to die for our sin. And we're just so thankful that you've allowed us to offer the life of an animal instead of our own lives because we realize we have sinned before a holy God. And now John the Baptist is pointing at Jesus and he's saying um, he's the one. He's going to lift up and carry away the sin of the whole world. Jewish sin, Roman sin, Canadian sin, maybe even American sin, maybe. Just kidding. John the Baptist is saying that Jesus is the one whose blood will be shed, whose blood will be spilled, not just to cover up, but to carry away the sin of the world, to deal once and for all with the sin problem that plagues our world, sin that destroys your life and my life and and, and can make this world such a rough place to live. Hey, this is John 3.16 stuff. You know the most famous verse in the Bible? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, but God shows his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what? True love, deep love, authentic love, it it can get really messy, even bloody. It sure did for Jesus. Jesus came into this world to wade into the mess that we live in. He did it out of love. He did it to provide a way to life, to wholeness, to healing. Life that starts now, that's transformed now, that we can live it in a way that we never thought possible that goes on for eternity. Jesus waded into the mess of this world to enable us to overcome the mess that sin creates. Friends, we're not just mistakers. We're sinners, but sinners loved by God who has made a way for us to overcome the mess that we live with. And that's what these communion stations set up front here are all about. Really, they're a bit sanitized, and that's why I started with this message in a less than sanitized way. But they're all about, they all picture a number of brutal realities that, you know, are all about us being set free from the mess, the sin that we all struggle with. So, yeah, not as bloody as the real thing, right? But they are a memorial of something that happened. You know, that night uh, at the end of Jesus' life as he gathered with his 12 and that would be the final Passover meal. Now, in the Jewish world, Passover was the annual celebration when Jewish people got together to celebrate when the death angel passed over all of the Jewish people in Egypt. And and what they did is they slaughtered a lamb. They, They killed a lamb and they took the blood of the lamb and they put it all over the doorpost, you know, the door frame, the top and side, uh, and, and they just smeared it with blood. Imagine doing that to the frame of your front door here in Fort McMurray. What a fashion statement, right? But they're doing this kind of thinking, 
Is painting my door frame with blood really going to protect me? But they do it. And the next day they wake up a free and delivered people and they get to leave the bondage and slavery of Egypt. It's a picture of what Jesus does for you and me today. So then Jesus has this meal, uh, it's at Passover, and he says, from now on, I I don't want you to think about those doorposts anymore. I I want you to think about me, that I am the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. I am the Lamb of God who will deliver you to freedom, to experience life now, life that's full and free, and and you'll do eternity with me. That night, after that supper, Jesus was arrested. And despite everything that he had just said to them, all these courageous men ran away and lost their faith. And Jesus was beaten, and he was crucified. But after they remembered the words of John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they remember the words of Jesus at the Last Supper. From now on, do this, do this in remembrance of me. And it's no longer wine that they drink that represents the blood of a lamb smeared over doorposts of Egypt 1,500 years ago. From now on, this wine represents the blood of Jesus that's going to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins as a gift of life and healing and wholeness that comes no other way. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to come forward and take bread, which represents the body of Jesus, nailed to the cross, and dip it in juice that represents the blood of Jesus that was poured out of his body as as he bled to death from the beatings, the crown of thorns, uh, being nailed to the cross with a a raw beaten back, uh, going up and down a splintered cross. You know, all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, all that blood spilled, all that was just a picture of what Jesus would do for us. It's Jesus' death, not those sacrifices that washes away sin. Sin in the Old Testament, sin in the New Testament, sin today, your sin, my sin. What can wash away your sin? You, you can't. You, you tried. Alcohol, drugs, they, they can for a while. Some things distract you. Some, some things can make you feel better for a time. But what can wash away? Come on. What can pick up and carry off your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Because when he died, he he canceled your indebtedness to God and he canceled your indebtedness to you. Your indebtedness to yourself, hear me, because this is some really good news. You do not have to forgive yourself for what you did. You don't. Because Jesus has already forgiven you. All you have to do is accept his forgiveness. That's it. Just say yes to Jesus. I receive your forgiveness. Come into my life. Clean me. Change me. Make me your child. Thank you. All you have to do is say yes to the forgiveness Jesus offers you. It doesn't matter how messy or not your life is. Just say yes. And that means from now on, when you think about your past and, and you, uh, you, know, you hear that name or you hear that story or you drive down that street in that city, from now on, those memories are simply a reminder of something different. They are no longer a reminder of your failure. They are no longer about your guilt and shame. No, no more. Hear me, this is good news. This is, this is so powerful. From now on, all of those memories, they simply stand as reminders of God's forgiveness, His love, His grace. Okay. Sometimes it takes a while for you to really get it, that you're forgiven, truly forgiven, you're set free, that you're a new person. It might take a while for you to feel the release. 
you might have to actually walk away, get alone, and remind yourself of this truth and just ask God to flood you with his healing presence. Or maybe you just declare it on the spot and you say, God, thank you, it's true, I did that. That happened to me, but, but, but you, you, you picked it all up. You picked up my sin and carried it away. What can wash away your sin? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of my Savior Jesus. And there's nothing you can do. Nothing that you can do to earn forgiveness. All you do is accept it. Because Jesus died. He died for your sin. And that means he picked it up and carried it off. And if God doesn't condemn you, come on, if if God doesn't condemn you, who are you to condemn you? So the question is, has there ever been a moment in your life when you received that forgiveness? All you need to do is believe. To believe by placing your trust in the fact that Jesus' death paid for your sin and that you as a result are in right standing with God. And when you do that, it, it, it changes how you live now and how you live forever. It, it, it sets you free. It brings you healing. It makes you whole. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And for those of you who know that, you, you have asked Jesus to be your forgiver. Jesus would ask you. He's given a mission to you to help others receive the greatest gift they could ever get, the life-giving, life-transforming gift of forgiveness. There is nothing more loving that you can do for another person. Hear me, there is nothing more loving that you can do for another person than to help them experience the love and forgiveness of Jesus for themselves. If you love someone, if you care for someone, you want them to know Jesus. I'm going to pray and lead you in a prayer where you can ask for his forgiveness, where you can be set free from the mess that sin has created in your life. And then after I've, I've prayed as a response of worship and thanksgiving, I, I invite you to come forward and take bread and dip it in the juice and partake of the elements. You can partake of the elements up here or in your seat, whatever you're most comfortable with, and just make this a time of worship and thanksgiving where you say, what can wash away my sin? Thank God, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And as you uh, come forward for prayer, we'll have a, a prayer team over here, and they'll be available to pray with you your wholeness, the healing you yearn for, or what your heart desires uh, for a family member or a friend. It's Jesus' death, his blood, that makes answers to prayer possible. So take advantage as well of communion as a time to be prayed for, to seek prayer. And then for those of you who are gluten-free, the bread in the center is gluten-free. Would you bow with me for prayer and, and just kind of take the words that I'm praying and pray them in your own way to God. Let's do that. Let, let's pray. Father God... I believe. Just tell him that. I believe that when Jesus died, it paid for my sin. I believe that he's the savior of the world. I believe that nothing I can do will ever pay for my sin. I need you to pay for it. I believe that Jesus' death that we celebrate at communion paid for it. I believe that you picked up my sin and carried it away. Help me to remember in those times when guilt and shame come crowding back in. Help me to stop and thank you for what you've done for me. And as I come forward to participate in communion, the bread and the juice, I do so giving thanks to you for all that you've done for me out of your love for me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.